morning is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you two? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. You can read it from the screen or from page 623 in your Bibles. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds the people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with with the evildoers. Peace. Beyond Israel. Thank you to Robin for reading Psalm 125 to us. Uh, and if I had to choose a, a text, it would be the first verse. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And I love the combination in that verse of our present security, those who trust him can't be shaken now, and the future confidence that goes with that. Mount Zion endures forever. There's a forever aspect to this verse. On into the future for all eternity. I love the way that uh, speaks to our hopes for a steady confidence now and for the future, for eternity. There's a story I like about um, 
an old guy called B.F. Westcott of a former century, um, or two centuries ago, probably started out. He was Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge, and then afterwards he was Bishop of Durham, I think. And there was an occasion where he was asked once when he was travelling by bus by a Salvation Army lassie. She was undeterred by the fact that in those days bishops used to wear strange, weird gaiters on their legs and looked slightly sort of otherworldly. She was asked, she asked the bishop um, whether he was saved, which was a sort of plucky question to ask somebody that was obviously a clergyman. Are you saved, bishop? And he replied with a twinkle in his eye, well, my dear, it depends what you mean. She might have been scenting um, advantage in the conversation at this stage had he got no answer to this question, are you saved? Well, my dear, it depends what you mean. Do you mean being saved, about to be saved, or having been saved? Which was a very judicious answer by somebody that knew that the Bible often speaks of those three tenses of salvation. And pastorally, those three tenses, past, present, and future, of our salvation are hugely important to hang on to. In the past, if I trust in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross for me, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. He bore it for me when he died on the cross for my sins. In the present, I am being saved from the power of sin. As the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living Lord Jesus Christ, gets to work gradually on my character. And as I press on day by day, past, present, in the future, I will be saved from the very presence of sin one day when Jesus Christ returns. That future hope is real. It's not yet. I'm in the waiting game. But there is no question about it. And Jesus' resurrection uh, that first Easter Sunday is the guarantee of it. As I said, pastorally, that is really important to have a sense of all three of those aspects of salvation going together. I have been saved. I am being saved daily from the power of sin. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I will be saved one day. Not yet, but I will be saved one day from the very presence of sin. Very important to get that comprehensive idea of God's saving work for us. And it's very much the background to the songs of ascent. You'll see the italicized title under each of the chapter headings of these psalms, from Psalm 120 through to Psalm 134, of the songs of ascent, this little section of Israel's hymn book. Um, Often this theme of now I have been saved, but not yet is the full salvation clear to me. That lies behind aspects of these psalms. They're 15 songs sung, we think, by those ascending Mount Zion for the annual temple feast, the three feasts that happen every year. If if I can do a bit of a refresher on what I said, the first one of these we looked at, um, ascents, see that heading that comes each time, is in the plural. And I'm not an expert at all in Hebrew, but the plural in Hebrew can mean a couple of different things. It could mean 
lots of different ascents as all the different pilgrims from all over Israel are making their way gradually up towards Jerusalem in the pilgrimage. Or ascents, plural, is a plural not of number but of magnitude or a plural of intensity. And Hebrew often works like that, I'm told. You don't say very holy or holiest, you say holy, holy, holy. You pluralize the word, as it were. Well, this is a song not of many ascents, but of the great ascent. It's intensifying it, it's magnifying it. Climbing the big hill at the heart of Israel's national and spiritual life, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. And there are, therefore, those two possible meanings people think to the title Song of Ascents. Lots of ascents, all the people going up together at the same time, or the big ascent which everybody was engaged in, going to Jerusalem to meet with God there. Or, this might be better, it could be both of those. It could actually, I want to have my cake and eat it, it could be a double entendre, pun, because Both of those ideas of a sense are true and possible. Every male Israelite has to go up to the temple three times a year for the festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacle, and they make the ascents as individuals. But why did God command that? Well, those mini ascents, plural, were a picture of the big ascent, which we're all engaged in. Anyway, I want you to remember that these songs of ascent were sung as pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem for the three festivals each year. Imagine if, this is the situation of our psalm today, as a pilgrim, maybe you live a long way away from Jerusalem, and you arrive at Jerusalem for the feast to find that another country has attacked the land of Israel. The enemy are in control Or at the very least, there's a superpower lurking in the background. Their shadow overhangs everything in the country. Looks like the scepter of the wicked is being waved over your country. It's your country. Your family roots are there. When the land was allotted to the different tribes all around the place, your family from your town and your tribe had land allotted to it. It's your, your country, your home. But that's not a threat. And you're asking yourself, well, now the bad guys are in charge. Life is being made terrible for everyone. Is Jerusalem my home or not? Is that our, our, our great hope and our great destiny to be part of God's heavenly city? Answer in verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. I've not been to Jerusalem. I've got people to put a hand up if they'd been to Jerusalem at the last service. One or two people have? Three? Well, I'm looking for confirmation from you of the fact that Jerusalem has either side of it a whacking great valley. Two valleys either side. And mountains behind that overlook it as well. There's mountains all around. It's protected, as it were. Uh, And those hills are majestic guardians of its safety. Yes, there would still be times of enemy influence that would make themselves felt in Israel. 
But his point is that the resident of God's city is protected by God himself, not just by the mountains. That's how he goes on in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. And I like the way it doesn't just say God, God's power and wisdom defends believers. It actually says he himself is round about them. In other words, they have his personality, God himself, for their protection. His Godhead is their God. Somebody asked a question once about what would have to happen for God to fail in his promises. Well, the answer is that he'd have to un-God himself for his protection of his people to fail. To stop being God. Verse 2 is, I love the way it just says, God himself surrounds them. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. So that's why the call in verse 1 is to trust the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Trusting God means connecting yourself to the one who endures forever. And if I do that, if I depend on him, if I trust him, that means I endure forever as well. What precious promises those surely are in a world where everything changes the whole time and nothing seems to last. If we connect with God and trust in him and rely on him, we have stability for his mercies, A, endure, ever faithful, ever sure. Okay, says somebody, how about the fact that my present experience is at odds with that? And that's where the scepter of the wicked comes in, in verse 3. Here's the assurance. The scepter of the wicked is there, it's real, but it will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. So Psalm 125 verse 3 is saying that... What Jesus went on to say, the gates, of the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is built on the rock. It'll be fine. And there's a funny motivation there that I wouldn't have put. I love it when the Bible comes in a way that you wouldn't have written it. Here, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. And here's a reason given that I wouldn't have chosen to put necessarily. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Um, if the pressure of ungodliness weighs too heavily on God's people and that doesn't change, there's a bad situation that might result. The people of God might take their law and their security into their own hands and fight back in an ungodly way. The righteous might use their hands to do evil. Moses sees an Egyptian cruelly oppressing a brother Israelite, what does he do? The righteous uses their hands to do evil. He goes and kills the Egyptian because there was no deliverance at that stage. Um, or it might be a sort of self-deliverance. Hezekiah, when he was king of Israel, they had an amazing deliverance from a, a massive enemy army that surrounded Jerusalem and God delivered them. Later on in his life, Hezekiah gets ill and he has a wobble 
he thinks, oh, maybe God can't be trusted. I know what I'll do. I'll trust myself. I'll send a message to the guys in Babylon to come and have a look around how wonderful the treasures are in my palace, just so they know that we can make a little offering to them so that they'll be on our side in the future. He turns to crooked ways, as the psalm puts it later on. All because he feared God wouldn't deliver. So the situation in verse 3 is, the scepter of the wicked is there, it's not taken away. That presents a situation where the righteous might decide righteousness is not paying. I'm going to take the law into my own hands and trust myself, not God. Well, the psalm says, no, don't yield to sin just to, 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 to pay for your own security in some way. Don't yield to the stress of the days you're in in order to escape the suffering. So that situation that comes to us, I guess, from time to time that we, we feel, why should I put up with the scepter of the wicked a moment longer? And our patience runs out. That can easily be the situation where sin comes running in. But the assurance of this verse is God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. He'll provide a way out in that situation so that we don't have to resort to ungodliness. What is the believer therefore to do? Well, the answer of this psalm is to pray. Look at verse 4. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who, like Hezekiah, turn to crooked ways... The Lord will banish with the evildoers. There's a warning of judgment if we turn away from God's ways. Hezekiah, I need to say, found mercy at long term. But those who habitually turn to crooked ways and uh, don't go God's way, uh, those two alternatives, either of blessing, do good to those who are good, or banishment, evildoers and those who resort to evil, We need to make a choice. We need to pray that God will enable us to be those who uh, rest in him, asking him to do good. This is a moral universe. The Bible is quite clear about that. The God of heaven and earth is a, is a, a righteous, good God who does good to those who are good. And we pray to God, therefore, to work according to his character. Be good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Those two alternatives are real, blessing or banishment. Notice he doesn't pray for God's enemies to be banished. (coughs) The point is that God can look after that himself. He prays, Lord, over to you. You settle this one, please, Lord. Do good to those who are good and enable me not to cave in and side with those that are going against your ways. And the result, lovely result, is the last four words of the psalm. Peace be on Israel, which is both a a request and a promise. There's another pun here. I know that the the poems of the Old Testament are full of double meanings because the word for peace, you will know if you know a little bit of, um, you've heard people say this before, is, is, is shalom or Salem, it's like Jerusalem. So they'll not only be like Jerusalem, 
which can't be shaken but endures forever. God's peace, God's shalom will rest on them. Peace with God meaning peace concerning all things in life. That is the wonderful prospect for us if we have our confidence in God. Now that's just a very gentle wander through the psalm for us. I want to come back to that image I started with about the three tenses of salvation because in a world where God's people are often under threat and maybe increasingly under threat, to have confidence in the everlasting peace of God for us in the midst of tough times and to eternity is hugely important. And that idea of the mountains of the Lord surrounding Jerusalem and God surrounding his people is intended to be a huge encouragement to us. All these songs of ascent are pointing that same way, that we are making a journey from this world to the next, we're making it together, and God will keep us. He's not going to let us down. Don't turn aside to crooked ways. Don't take your law, the law into your own hands and fight back against God's uh, enemies um, in, in an unhealth, unhealthy way. Trust him. Pray to him. Lord, do good to those who are good. Leave the outcome with him. And his peace will be graciously given to us. And the whole idea of Zion, Jerusalem, and the heavenly Zion is, it's obviously one of the recurrent themes of the Bible. There's a gardening image which I quite like, which maybe helps us to understand the different ways um, this Old Testament hope can get fulfilled. I don't know if you know the difference between annuals and perennials. There's always a danger if I try something about gardening that I'll get uh, some healthy corrections from people that do know um, afterwards. But as I understand it, an annual comes into flower in one season and that's your lot. It's over. It can be spectacular and lovely, but it's gone. And some aspects of Old Testament fulfillment are a bit like that. There are prophecies which really only focus on the details of Jesus' first coming when he came at Christmas. And they have a bright bloom when Jesus came, but in one sense from that point their job is done. Perennials are different from annuals. Perennials may flower beautifully in their first season, but they reach their full beauty and maturity in later years. And this image of Jerusalem that underlies the Psalms of Ascent is a bit like that. There is a bright bloom when Jerusalem first became its literal bricks and mortars, the capital city for the nation of Israel. So you think about how that happened in the Old Testament story. There was lots of celebrating when Jesus, uh, when, when, when the, when the, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, wasn't there? And even more celebrating when the temple was built by David's son, Solomon. First flowering was pretty impressive. There was a new season's flowering in the life of the church later on. That becomes uh, Mount Zion Mark II, if you like, the annual coming back another year later. So um, Hebrews 12 says to the Christians that are receiving that letter, 
you have come, past tense, to Mount Zion. And in the life of the church, uh, wonderful things happen. The bloom of what you'd seen in the bricks of mortar Jerusalem in the Old Testament is seen in another building plan that God does as he brings together Jews and Gentiles and does that unthinkable divide between them gets overturned. Um, And all over the world, people are built into the house. That happens in the gospel age. And at the end of time, when Jesus comes again, well, then it's going to be even more amazing, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we'll be safe forever in that wonderful city. You look at the uh, description of it with Jasper and Carnelian and Topaz and amazing gates and huge dimensions in Revelation 21 and 22. That is the solidity and the safety to which you're heading if you trust in Jesus Christ at the end of time when Jesus comes again. But only when Jesus returns to deal with evil fully and finally will all that Jerusalem in the past and in the present has come to point onwards, really be seen. Then we'll see the fair flower of paradise restored in that uh, great picture. And it's with that hope that I hope each of us will take that uh, prayer of verse 5 on our lips today. Peace be upon Israel. You can pray for yourself. Peace be upon me. But make sure you pray it for other people here as well and others that you know. Peace be upon Israel, the wider grouping of God's people. One of the great Puritan preachers was a guy, I don't even know how to pronounce his surname, Flavel. There was a time when he was preaching. He was a Cambridge man. He ended up preaching down in Dartmouth, um, the big naval base in Devon. And... Having preached the sermon, he was about to pronounce the blessing at the end of the service. But he stopped mid-flow as he thought about what he was doing, because he'd been preaching on a little bit in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, some very sobering words, where it says this, a curse on everyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. And so he ended the sermon and the service rather abruptly. How shall I bless this assembly, he said, when every person who does not love the Lord is anathema? That's Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 16. End of service. Off they go with that uh, pretty sobering warning ringing in their ears. Well, Luke Short was somebody who was listening to that sermon that day. He was 15 15 years old when he heard that comment. And he happened, in the course of time, to emigrate to the States, where he lived and grew old. And then one day, as a farmer, he was working in the fields at the ripe old age of 100. When you get to reflect on life, when you get to lived to that age, he remembered the preacher's words and he looked back on his life. And there and then, the story goes, in the middle of a field, he fell to his knees, he was deeply convicted of all the missed opportunities of his life and he repented and said, I'm going to make sure that that curse doesn't fall on me. Apparently he joined the church in his town in Middlesbrough and died at the good old age of 116. But more importantly... 
he knew that peace of God. He knew that the curse had lifted because it had fallen on Christ and he loved the Savior. I want to encourage all of us to make sure that that peace, that shalom, is ours and that we pass it on to others. That we don't suffer that awful fate of banishment with the evildoers. We don't turn to crooked ways. Make sure that peace is yours. I have two bullet point applications. Confidence and congregation. We can be confident, even when the sector of the wicked is very much in evidence today, as I've mentioned already, get hold of that link to the Glyn Harrison talks, just to feed your soul with encouragement that God's people are on the winning side. I'm not trying to cheapen it by saying that, but we have every reason for confidence if we trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. Will you feed that confidence? If you're able to access YouTube and watch Glenn Harrison, I, I guarantee it'll be a, a strengthening and encouragement to you. We don't need to meet force with force and fight back in an ungodly way. We can trust God and leave the outcome with him. Confidence. And secondly, congregation. This is a group endeavor. The song of ascents are meant to be sung or said by a grouping as we encourage each other. And therefore I want to gently lay it on you to say if you're able to make it to one or other of those opportunities in the month of August to meet with other people and strengthen each other by so doing then come along on Wednesday mornings to pray, on Thursdays fortnightly for for coffee and mutual encouragement on Wednesday evenings. We're traveling together to heaven. Let's make sure we encourage each other for that. I had a, a lovely Christian friend who's recently gone to be with the Lord who used to pray when people were having a hard time. And he used to pray uh, often. He, I remember him praying, uh, Lord, may you be a wall around them and a well within them. And I think it's a lovely prayer, isn't it? It's very much in keeping with this particular psalm that God will protect us and provide for us, be a wall around us as the mountains surround Jerusalem and a well within us. Let me pray that way for us as I close now. We pray it particularly, Lord, for any who are going through difficult times at the moment with every thanks that Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem and died on a hill outside Jerusalem for our sins and therefore has settled our eternity if we trust in him. We thank you for payment for our sins. We thank you for the future being secure because of him. And it is our prayer, particularly for those that are struggling at the moment, that you would be as a wall around them, protecting them, giving them your security and protection, even when wickedness threatens in some way or another. A wall around them and a well within them. We pray for your spiritual life to well up within them by the Holy Spirit to give them uh, 
uh, a strength and vitality that other people can't explain any other way except that you have graciously met with them and are with them. Lord, will you please draw close to people that are, are struggling, but be that wall of protection, that well within us to each one of us individually and to the church as a whole, we pray. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.